Welcome to Frameline. I'm Barbara Gosowski, here as usual with my favorite critic, Courtney Small. Hello, how are you doing today? Great, how are you? I'm doing well. We survived. We survived another survived Sundance. Sundance. <laughs> and I, should, yes. I should say that it wasn't, uh, you know, we make it sound like it was um, uh, an epic feat, but actually it was, it was delightful. It was just a little tiring. Yeah, no, we're, we're laughing. We're smiling. We're like, yeah. you said it in an enthusiastic way. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of films to consume. A lot it was, of films. It That's all. That's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to do, but we're happy. Um, so we're going to give you guys just, you know, part two, and we're going to sort of wrap up the festival and Courtney is going to start us off. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll start us off with the, the film that won the big, um, dramatic award, the U S, um, dramatic award that they give out and they give it a lot of awards at Sundance, but this film was called a thousand and one. Um, and it's directed, it was the feature debut of a director by the name of A.V. Rockwell. And she crafts a really fascinating tale that focuses on a young woman by the name of Inez, played by Tiana Taylor, who's just really amazing in this film. And you're basically following Inez and her six-year-old son, Terry, as they're living in New York City in the 90s. And the film, I would say, spans decades. Like it, it really shows the struggles that they have um, growing together, sticking together, but also in New York that's being slowly gentrified. And you start to see how the gentrification even starts to encroach on their walls in terms of like how the super or the landlord doesn't necessarily handle things or fix things right away or kind of suggest that maybe they need to move out for a while so he could do a proper thing and you know if they move out chances are they're not coming back in like it, it's a really fascinating look at at paternal love but also just how new york and gentrification really impacted a community um there's a lot that happens in this film, but I was quite taken with it. And I also loved how for a film that spans so many years, it doesn't feel like you're being set up or it doesn't draw things out. It's just like all of a sudden, oh, you know, Terry's a little older now. Oh, you know, Inez has a different job or in a different apartment and you just kind of flow with it. Uh, it it's just a, a really wonderful film that it packs a punch by the end. Yeah, it really packs a dramatic punch. And I, I really like the way that um, she sets up their relationship and she focuses on their relationship. And like the film stylistically, I mean, it's pretty, like, I wish it was a bit tighter. It's tight, but I wish it was a bit tighter. And I wish it didn't have um, this sort of linear narrative, you know, where we do jump a few years. I wish it had more of a an associative kind of like maybe time jumping, um, time jumping in a different kind of a way back and forth in, in time instead of, you know, jumping a few years forward and jumping a few years forward. That That's a minor quibble, though. Like, I think I just think that would have made it stronger, the impact. But it's such an incredible story um, that really uh, the director, um, Rockwell, she she really she she does serve it well by kind of stepping back. And she only really um, stylistically, she comes in for close ups when it comes to Terry and Inez and their relationship and 
and the things, you know, the events, the circumstances that, that really matter in their lives together. Um, even though, as you say, it does build up a sense of the time and place of 90s New York and the community around them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think in doing that, Rockwell creates like a series of relationships that comment on their own relationship and, you know, sort of uh, give it a context uh, that makes the emotional impact at the end really more striking. So it's a very effective film and uh, I can't wait until bigger audiences, larger audiences can see it. Oh yeah. There's going to be a lot of discussions uh, with this film. And the last thing I'll say about it is I really loved, you were talking about how she uses the close-ups um between the mother and son for a lot of scenes but i also loved how she uses the broad aerial shots for new york like you really feel new york in this film and you see it slowly changing you know and that it's 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 it was really really well done uh you were talking about films that you wanted something a little more jumping through time do you want to talk about all dirt roads uh sorry i'm forgetting the the full time tastes like taste of salt. All dirt roads taste all dirt. Of salt. All, all dirt roads taste like salt. Um, another amazing film. Although this won no awards, this was to me one of the most effective films of the festival, and one that will stay with me. And, you know, I I can't wait to see it again. It's mm-hmm. one of those kinds of films. This is a debut film from Raven Jackson. So this is what makes it even more incredible. And this is a completely different kind of film. It's much more slow and contemplative. And I don't want that to scare people away because it gives you a a sense of time and place. This is Mississippi. And I don't even know if we have a sense of when in in Mississippi, but this, we don't. From the description here, I can't tell you what time in place but it doesn't matter because it's it's so connected to the natural world and mac our main character she and her sister and her dad and her mom i mean mostly it's about mac but the connections that they as a family and especially her have to the natural world the way she exists in it the way um it's so sensual this this film is such an it's so expressionistic. Um, there is no time when you don't hear crickets and frogs. And, you know, like it pauses, the film pauses, uh, but the film pauses um, to show you moments of connection between people, between the people in the family. It is like it is this enclosed world even though you're in nature right so it's this open completely open world and it's sensual and it's sensuous and it's just and the way she uses silence uh the way she uses natural elements beyond what i've described like um like the dirt and then the rain and the way she uses she she herself and i'm saying she as in raven jackson the way um, she uses pacing. There's this sense of things slowing down and then there's a sense of release. And when there's a sense of release, that's usually when it rains and the rain brings like some like explosive, usually explosive kind of release, you know, it's like, uh, I, I have to see it again to, 
to really, but I just was so struck by so many, so many different things in the film. I'm just, um, yeah, I, I, all dirt roads taste of salt. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful film. And I think what I like about this film is it's one of those works where you know, you're witnessing something unique, something phenomenal that even though the pacing is slow, you want to stick with it. And it was one of the few films at the festival that I was thinking about a lot. And I feel with the next viewing, it's going to be even richer because there was so much to consume within this viewing and the way how, as you said, nature is such a central character in this film, but then also it uses nature to blend time and memory. Um, You know, the rain will take you to the bathtub, which will take you to some other place. And, you know, it really kind of draws out a lot of the emotional beats. Like nothing is rushed here. And it's just so fascinating to observe. But by the end of it, you're thinking, I want to see this again. Yeah, and I, absolutely. And, and you yes. want to, you just want to dissect more. You want to see how it transitions. You want to figure out why she chose to really focus on the dirt in this scene and on the rain on the next. And it's just a, a wonderful work. And the, there's a lot of shots on hands. And I know you often see that with, um, a lot of like film school projects, people will show oh, hands connecting or whatnot. But here it takes on such an ethereal aspect yeah. to it. You know, like it, she's not doing it just because, oh, it's a cool stylistic thing. It's like there's a lot of meaning behind it. Like this has been really thought out. So, yeah, I absolutely loved this film. And uh, yeah, I that's what, I mean, that that's what I meant when I was saying about a thousand and one, because I saw Alder Road's Taste of Salt first. And I saw the way, as you said, it played with time and memory and it used that as a structuring device. And so then when I saw this linear narrative that had like a different kind, but an equal amount of emotional punch to it in 1001, I thought, oh, if you had just, you know, figured out a structure of your own like that one. I know I hate telling filmmakers what to do. It's just, <laughs> you know, it, it's just that um, All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt just feels so skilled, so masterful. And yet it's a debut feature. So it's just so striking in that way. In so many ways, as you say, uh, with each viewing, I think we're all going to get more out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, since we've been talking about really great debut features, we've already had two so far and i'm i'm gonna go for the trifecta um with (laughs) with rye lane um and it's a film directed by rain allen miller and this is a just charming romantic comedy uh that feels like it's coming from a director who has studied the genre and figured out a way to make it feel fresh and relevant again um so in this film it follows um, two young individuals from London, Dom and Yaz. Um, they meet essentially in a bathroom at an art gallery because Dom is crying because he's still pining over his former flame who has moved on with his best friend. Um, and essentially, over the course of a day or so, kind of like um, before night falls or, or sorry, not before night, but before sunset, 
th- that type of film where you see Dom and Yaz kind of traversing through London, including Rylane, to and getting to know each other, but also she's trying to help him get over this past relationship. And then you also start to learn a bit about her previous relationship with, and there's this whole kind of subplot about getting a record, a Tribe Called Quest's album, The Low End Theory, back from her boyfriend who did not appreciate Tribe Called Quest. And that's a a red flag for for any dating relationship. Yeah, It's just a... (laughs) It's a it's a wonderful, charming film that w- what I liked about it is the dialogue felt authentic and natural. There was a couple of other films I saw at Sundance where you had people in their 20s talking really stylized, you know, using terms that felt more like it was coming from Twitter opposed to like actual conversation. Where here it felt natural. The places that they went in the environments and the awkwardness in the different places that they went. It felt real. Um, and it's also just really funny and, and really charming. It's one of those where you just you, you're just rooting for this couple to hopefully realize that they might be perfect for each other. You know, whether or not that's going to happen, you have to watch it and find out. But it's just such a, a charming film. And there's a great cameo by a actor that you're going to recognize. It's almost like a, a blink and you miss it cameo. But for the, you know, five seconds he's on screen. It's a, a wonderful comedic moment. So highly recommend Rye Lane if you're looking for a, a fun uh, romantic comedy. Uh, and if you allow me, I'm going to stick with the comedy for uh, a little bit and talk about the new film from Nicole Olive Center. I can never pronounce her name and I apologize, but she's the director who um, directed uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me? She's done I think stuff with like Catherine Keener. You'll You'll recognize her work. She's just a really talented writer, director. But her latest film is You Hurt My Feelings. And it stars um, Julia Louise Dreyfus from, people know from Seinfeld or Veep. But she plays a novelist who is struggling with her, her next, her second novel. She wrote this memoir about her traumatic childhood. Um, and now she's doing a fiction book and it's not quite working out with her agent. She's struggling and her husband, Don, he's supportive, but he's also a therapist and he's, his career seems to kind of be floundering. He's not really helping his patients the way that they need to be helped. But the crux of this story is apparently Don doesn't quite like best book, but being the supportive husband, he keeps trying to encourage her and he won't tell her that he doesn't like the book. And that causes a lot of conflict. And from there, you start to see the film unfolds. And it's really about how in relationships, you know, you often try to be supportive and loving. And sometimes that means not necessarily telling your partner the truth about the things that you don't like about them. Because you'd rather, <laughs> you know, ignore that those little quibbles for the greater picture. Whereas in this one, Beth is really focused on the little picture and it starts a a snowball chain reaction of other people in other relationships starting to question, well, are there things that you're lying to me about? And so it's, it's a really funny romantic comedy. Uh, The cast is great. And as I said, it's one of those films where you're going to sit and watch. And especially if you're dating someone, married someone, if you're watching it together, you're going to be elbowing them every once in a while being, huh, you see that? Or, oh, uh, that, that part's a little too close to home. <laughs> you know, that type of thing. So really, really enjoyable 
kind of feel good comedy and it's called you hurt my feelings sounds great mm-hmm. um how about we keep with the the narrative ones and then we can jump to the dog so do you want to talk maybe about uh, scrapper scrapper won the world cinema grand jury prize as well to see like like you said there a uh, number of awards yeah there's so multiple there's, awards yeah so scrapper won an award in the dramatic competition as well and uh it's it uh, takes place in scotland it's about a 12 year old girl named georgie who's very resourceful um unfortunately her mother passed away and so she pretends that her uncle is now taking care of her her uncle winston churchill and she gets uh, the local the guy in the local uh, store to record messages from uncle winston that she could use to fool the social services into thinking everything's fine he really exists uh she has her best friend ali they go around they steal bikes that's how she gets money and she seems to be doing all right it's kind of you know it's a rough rough film it's not rough i mean it's kind of it's an indie film it looks kind of indie but it doesn't look like you know rough streets rough childhood kind of it kind of looks a bit charming and she's kind of charming in her own you know in her own you know speaking in expletives like throwing them around kind of way but i mean we're we're in the indie film scene so we don't care we love this kind of stuff right and uh suddenly this guy shows up this adult and says it's her father so she has to deal with these feelings and of course she doesn't trust him and then we start to see how really she hasn't been coping that well uh, there have been signs before that that she hadn't been really coping that well with the death of her mother and uh, the scrappiness is sort of like it's not cute anymore because like it's giving way to signs of like there's actually really um, something wrong. Like, of course there is, you know, she's only 12 and she just lost her mother suddenly. And so the film is is uh in its own way really interesting in certain ways it has these really interesting sequences that are very creative very creative use of camera work and editing uh, but for the most part it ha has sequences and most of the time it just stops and tells you the story and just has these sort of sequences it it has this sort of like mockumentary uh structure that sort of interrupts periodically but for the most part it's a straightforward drama and um as charming as it is and definitely it, you know it, it'll it's compelling it'll hold your interest it held my interest she's very interesting but after seeing after sun you know daughter and father like they were not estranged in after son but you know daughter and father trying to get to know each other better uh, you know it felt like after sunlight okay sort of like it's it's just the wrong it's bad timing maybe it just 
it didn't it didn't strike me as overly creative it didn't strike me as anything out of the ordinary it's like a really well-made indie film that's charming okay. charming style charming kid charming you know <laughs> so I'm sorry if I if I sound kind of like jaded. I feel a little bit jaded, but no, I didn't get that at all. I, it just <laughs> it, it sounded like it was just something that didn't quite hit the mark for you. No, but it's I guess it's just I'm struggling because it won an award, and well, you know, yeah. But I mean, again, films win awards for different reasons, right? It, exactly, exactly. It, you know, it probably connected with someone else on. The, the jury for for that particular award. Uh, do you want to talk about is it Shada or Shida? Yeah, Shada. Shada won the audience award for the World Dramatic Competition. And actually, I thought this film was more compelling. It's more serious. Uh, so I mean, Georgie's got more kind of funny, quirky moments. Uh, but never mind their tone. Never mind the tone. Um, Shada is much more serious. It's a, about a woman escaping her uh, husband. Um, she's an Iranian woman living in Australia. She had moved there with her husband, but he he's very frightening. And so she finally had had enough and she had to leave with their daughter, their six-year-old daughter. And how it's, it's about how the two of them are trying to start a new life in a women's shelter. And it's about the life of the women's shelter, shelter in terms of the other people in the women's shelter. But it's mostly about those two um, trying to, to move on. It's, it's a very, very well-made film that really uh, establishes this sort of special little world of their own. Because there's so much going on around them, there are other people, you know, things like that. It, the father does come back into the picture because social services says he has to have access until the divorce is finalized, until they figure out the details of the divorce, things like that. So there are other people, um, but it, the film is is really uh, quite excellent at making sure that we have this sort of sense of their private world, where it's just them, and the outer world in which they, you know, around them. And uh, it struck me that the way that the filmmaker, also also a debut feature, Nora Niasari, her, her debut feature, like, it's just like, it's raw, it's poetic, it's compassionate, it's courageous. It's just got so many things going on in it. And, and, it's got this incredible performance uh, by Zar Amir Ebrahimi, and she won at Cannes, last year's Cannes. She won the Best Actress Award for Holy Spider. So there you go. Another reason to see the film. She's oh, okay. equally compelling in this. Excellent. Well, I, let's end off the narrative portion of our discussion with um, Theater Camp. And that one, I believe it won an award for best ensemble or, or some type of, I think it won the ensemble award. Uh, it's one, it did, yeah. it's one that is definitely going to be a crowd pleaser um, when it gets released. And it's a film that plays like a, I guess you could say mockumentary. Think 
waiting to go waiting for guffman um that style of film where it's set at a summer theater camp that is potentially going to go out of business because its founder suffered a a stroke in seizure in um by watching a production of bye bye birdie and the lights the strobe light effects put her into this deep long coma so her son who's a bit of a i guess social media influencer at least in his mind has to take over this theater camp knowing nothing about theater uh, so it takes you over the, cor- the course of this summer as the camp is struggling to survive and you see the various teachers you know you've got the the dramatic teacher the musical teacher there's the costume teacher the person who does the texts and the props all they're all kind of coming together to do whatever the yearly production is and kind of floundering their way through it's very much a it's a comedy that pokes fun at theater but you could tell was made by theater nerds um ben platt who i believe played um evan hansen in the the broadway musical the broadway production he's one of the the teachers um, Molly Gordon, who was also one of the co-directors, she plays a, another one of the teachers. Uh, and it's it's just a it's a funny film. It doesn't go too deep. I wish they had played up the whole documentary aspect a little more. Like I, I think Christopher Guest has really kind of perfected how you do those type of things where you still kind of feel like you're watching a documentary that's capturing the, the screwball antics that's going on. Whereas here, I think sometimes they get so into like the jokes and the comedy that they forget the the feel of of a of a documentary um but it's it's entertaining and it's it's definitely going to be a crowd pleaser and those who love theater at any level even the casual theater fan who might have seen hamilton on disney or something you're going to probably love this cuz there's just a lot that will um attract people from different ages and in different groups so uh, theater camp is is definitely worth watching if you're in the mood for something light. Um, let's move over to the docs because uh, there was a lot of docs that played at Sundance. We talked about uh, a fair number in our previous episode, but do you want to talk about maybe um, internal memory? Do you want to start there? Yeah, internal memory, it won the big award for documentary. Uh, well, it won the big world cinema documentary award, the grand prize grand jury prize. So the eternal memory, um, uh, it's a director that's been at Sundance before and has been Oscar nominated. His name is Maite Alberdi, and he focuses on a couple, Augusto and Paulina. They've been in love for 25 years, um, but Augusto has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. In fact, he was diagnosed eight years ago. the thing is, Augusto was a prominent TV presenter and was one of the uh, most prominent cultural commentators during the time of Pinochet and really was someone who rallied and, you know, protested and, and sort of like fought to bring Pinochet down through his reports and his broadcasts and stuff. And uh, so, he and he he himself was someone who really believed in like he wrote a book he believed 
you know, cultural memory and the importance of memory and the importance of remembering things to keep that as part of your identity, but also to help you to move on so that, you know, in that respect, it's sort of like any event is sort of a pivotal thing in your, your identity, in the formation of your identity as something that you remember, but something that helps you move forward. So this is sort of what's happening in the film is that he's struggling in the, in his lucid moments, he's struggling to remember who he is. And he, the film reminds us of who he was and then shows him as struggling with his own identity as he's struggling to move forward into an unknown. Um, and I actually had a problem with the film. It's, it's very intimate because it's mostly uh, with Paulina, his, his, his wife, taking care of him. And it's a very loving portrait in that way. And it's very loving of both of them in terms of their history and their, their present and the way that she is there with him by his side, even during his most difficult moments. The problem that I had with the documentary was that in his most difficult moments, when he is struggling, anyone who has seen someone in that sort of phase of Alzheimer's, in that stage of Alzheimer's, who doesn't know where they are and who they are and what's going on. That's not the type of person who can give you permission to film, right? And so I'm watching these deeply intimate private moments, these terrible moments of him. And I'm thinking, eventually I thought, hey, how do I know I have a right to watch this? How do I know we, we have a right to watch this? Who gave permission? He didn't. He can't. So I don't, I don't know if that's simplistic of me, but I just couldn't get past that. Hmm, that's very interesting. I never, I didn't think of it that way when I was, when I was watching the film, but that's a very interesting discussion. Um, Obviously, I don't know the answer to it, but I, I that opens up a whole line of thought that I hadn't considered um, watching this film. I, I will say that I did like this film for the most part. Um, what really struck me about this film was when, as way as how it looks at enduring love, and it really focuses on the couple's past, and you really get the the sense of their relationship, and even you know, as he's at this particular stage, at least for, like say, the good first half of this film, even when she's recounting things and stuff like that, you could just see the the love that she has for him and the little twinkle that there might be something, a little bit of memory still in there for him. And I think for me, I got so wrapped up in that, that it got to a point where I was like, oh, wait, there's got to be probably a, like a darker side to, to this experience. And it kind of, it does kind of hit in the, in the latter half, but we spend so much time in the, the warmth of love that it feels such like a striking contrast when we get to the, the parts where you're talking about, like the, the nighttime incidents, the times where he's calling out for friends who aren't there, or he's, he doesn't know who she is. And you start to see her break down because of the whole idea of being with someone who doesn't, remember you and that was also fascinating but i felt like 
we need to explore that even more than we do. It's like we spent so much time mm-hmm. in, in smelling the roses in many ways, which I absolutely love that I forgot, oh, wait, there's this whole other section and this other section needed to be fleshed out more. Yes, right? especially so it, for, it, someone, for someone who spent that much, that much chunk of his uh, at least career um, talking about the importance of memory and how important it was to him. Mm-hmm. And how important he felt it was to the construction of uh, a culture's identity, a person's identity. And here we are where it's like this disease has uh, stripped you of that. So now what? Yeah. Yeah. It's, a very, it's interesting. It's, it's one that I kind of want to revisit again, you know, to look at it from, from your point of view, but also just to see if there, if there was a, a different way you could approach this and, and find more of a perfect balance so i, I think don't for me it was missing again <laughs> that's that's okay that's all right. no i just it's it's a disturbing um experience mm-hmm. and um I, I, you know it, it's not it's not that the filmmaker didn't do the best job possible it's just that the idea I think inherently had these questions. Yeah. Uh, when you, when you, especially when you choose such a subject, when you choose to follow an individual who's known for that, for writing like a book about the memory, the importance of memory in Chilean history, mm-hmm. you know, especially with regard to Pinochet and how Pinochet tried to wipe out memory and history. And, yeah. You know, you see that person struggling with their own memory. Yeah, the implications are just, I just found them too disturbing. But anyway, sorry. I don't want to pass this film. It's a a very, obviously the film had uh, quite powerful impact for Mm -hmm. for me to even, you know, think of these things. Yeah. So that's the eternal memory. I'm going to um, pivot slightly in terms of like how documentaries look at people's life and the memories they have and i'm going to talk about invisible beauty um and it's a film about a model agent activist um beth ann hardison and she was um one of the prominent black fashion models um in the early days when being a black fashion model was not a thing that was viable. Um, she endured obviously a lot of racism and hardship, but over the course of her career, she was very much a vocal advocate for diversity and inclusion to the point where she even started her own modeling agency and had like the who's who of, of models. So especially in the nineties, when supermodels were really taking off in the eighties and nineties, there were a lot of her clients. So she was working with all the big brands and, she was the person who signed Tyson Beckford, who became like the first male supermodel. Um, so through all the success, she was still very much fighting for diversity and inclusion. So this film follows her plight um, and Beth Ann Hardison co-directs this with um, Frederick Chen. And you see Hardison 
kind of thinking back on her life as she's also writing her memoirs. So she's trying to figure out stylistically how the film is going to open. And, and you hear a lot of conversations between her and Frederick on what the film should be about, how it's going to take place. So there's that aspect to it. But what I found really fascinating was the archival footage of of some of the stuff that she did. Like she had, there's this one really fascinating moment where she basically called all the top people in the fashion industry, agents, um, fashion designers, and had essentially like a town hall and, and came with the stats and was like, here's a problem. A lot of these fashion houses are not hiring black models. Um, there's a, a period in, in time where like thin Russian women became the the standard and everyone was doing that. So when she's having this discussion and basically calling these industries out, she even had like an open letter that she sent out naming names, naming corporations who thing and that, you know, sparked some stuff, but you even see there's in a particular scene where she's having this town hall where she's talking about like how, you know, the agents have a responsibility, this person, and you see one agent get really defensive, you know, the kind of, well, it's not me. It's not me. It's, you know, and, and then he ends up making it about him instead of the issue at large. So you get a really good grasp of the struggle that she endured and how um, you see like Naomi Campbell is in it a lot because they're good friends. And you, you see that how she was not only an activist, but she really cared for a lot of these models, right? She became almost like a second mother to them. She taught them about the industry and how it eats you up and chews you out and how you need to be fighting for something greater, right? And really brought the sense of activism into the fashion world. So it's a really fascinating um, documentary in terms of like, she's just a, a, a phenomenal woman. Stylistically, I think the approach could have, there could have been a little more flair to the overall film, but as I said, the woman is such an inspiration that you won't mind. And I, I, I think Invisible Beauty is is worth watching. Um, and maybe if you don't mind, we could talk about another inspiring woman that got a doc, uh, Nikki Giovanni. You want to talk about going to Mars? The... Well, yeah, Nikki, she's a legendary poet. And I imagine for anyone who knows her, she's a legendary person. She seems like it on screen. I mean, she's the type of person that uh, I just feel like I could just keep watching and listening. And, you know, I, like if, if she was in front of me, I would just be you know, <laughs> just agog watching her and listening and, and just captivated uh, nonstop because um, she's just got this, this way of speaking and her poetry is compelling. Um, her insights are compelling and the documentary just has a way of combining like archival footage and live readings of her poetry. And uh, she has this belief that, and she's adamant, the trip to Mars can only be understood through black Americans. And specifically she argues through black women because they are the only people that can understand going somewhere, somewhere completely foreign and making sense of it making you know making a space for yourself making it hospitable for yourself right and so she she's just like never a dull moment with this woman and some of the the um 
the old footage is really fascinating. They sort of weave in this footage of her debating James Baldwin, which is, it's, it's like two sparks of light, you know, engaging with each other. Uh, it's fascinating, right? And sometimes like the filmmakers, uh, Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson, sometimes they, uh, I'm, it's a little clunky the way that they try and like visually represent this whole Nikki wants to go to Mars thing, <laughs> you know? It's like, I think it would have been more compelling if you just let Nikki talk about it and let us imagine it and go with her instead of you creating these clunky visuals or uh, just that part didn't work. But otherwise it's very engaging. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this one, but I, I completely agree with you. The issues I had with it were how they try to incorporate the NASA space imagery. Um, and yeah. then even like when they had Taraji P. Henson reading some of her poems um, based off of it, it always felt like almost like a palate cleanser, like they're we're going to transition to another topic now, but we need this poem to be read. It, it just felt a little awkward. But I, outside of that, I, I was quite fascinated by um, Giovanni's life, her her works. I think it's interesting because she's such a no-nonsense woman, and like she kind of just tells it like it is, that I felt like the film needed a little more stylistic oomph to... To really yeah, you know what it needed? Her the, it needed uh, her. It needed her to comment on the style and go cut that out, cut that out. It needed mm -hmm. her no nonsense style and vision to to tell the filmmakers to stop that, stop this, stop that, take that out. You know, mm -hmm. that's what it needed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry it, to interrupt. No, no, no. You're right. Like, I just, it just but it's like it's just a little something to what you were saying, yeah. right? But I, I. Otherwise, like I, I, I did enjoy this film. Um, to Invisible Beauty, you know, it's a, telling a film about a really fascinating and important woman. And, and to your point, like I, I came away from this film going, I want to read some more of her works. I want to sit down and just listen to that conversation with Baldwin. Like, you know, yeah. so if, if anything, it will introduce those who don't know um nikki giovanni or i've never read her her works really you're going to want to dive into her life and her works after so on that level the the film's quite effective i just just wish stylistically um it was a little smoother in how it unfolded yeah absolutely i agree with you um how about we close things off with a documentary that i know we both saw um kokomo city yeah which I I think was just a lot a, of style. Talk about style. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. It, it's exactly. It's a film that has a lot of smile style. It was directed by D. Smith, and the documentary basically focuses on four black um, transgendered sex workers who are based in New York and Georgia, and you know, kind of looks at their life, how they got into the industry. But then it really looks. It takes like a broad um examination of what it means to be a black transgendered woman in america what does it mean for men to openly um go after transgender women and for men to 
you know, secretively go behind. And like, it really explores, and even though it's about the sex work industry, yes, it talks about the dangers and the hardships, but that's not necessarily the, the main focus. Like you, you always know there's a risk to what they do, but it also explains why a lot of them have to do that type of work. It also shows that, hey, transgender women can find love and tenderness. And it's, it's, it's a really broad film filled with a lot of style, a lot of energy. Like this, this film flew by. And I was, yeah. by the time the credits rolled, I was like, oh, I, I want to know more. This is such a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating film. So yeah, I, was, I, I quite enjoyed Kokomo City. Yeah, it, it won the, um, it was in the next uh, category. Oh, the next so generation. The, the yeah. Next, yeah, next is, um, in, you know, there's dramatic, there's documentary, and there's next besides shorts and, and others. But um, a next means like who's next, who's coming up. And uh, this one, the award, the, the Innovator Award for D. Smith, who is a veteran of the music industry. So you've seen her work in like music videos and stuff. And so you go, you know, if you know that, you, you sort of like go into it thinking, oh, okay music videos but there's so much more going on here than any music video and besides which if you've seen any music video any good one they usually give you like through their visual style a sense of so much more going on which is exactly what's going on here as you say there's so much conveyed about um like the the intimate the more intimate side of life uh people are very uh, bold and daring in this film very brash and uh and the film is just shot in beautiful black and white but uh they're direct they're just very this is just the way it is you know um and you appreciate that you appreciate that this is just like we're gonna tell our stories and this is the way it is and there's room for a sense of so much variety in terms of yeah like you said it's dangerous but look at the, all the love look at the like the sexiness look at that look at everything that's going on um and if i could just quickly mention another film sure go ahead uh the way that this one sort of is like more intimate into like more of the day-to-day thing day-to-day side of life uh the stroll which okay. is it was in the documentary is in the documentary section and that won an award a special jury award in the documentary section, the stroll tells you the history of a famous area in New York City uh, that's been gentrified. So we're going full circle. We're going back full circle to yep, where, we started where we started with yep. gentrification and how gent- gentrification has impacted uh, this area, the meatpacking district in New York City. And so starting in the 70s, um, that's where the stroll was uh, 14th Street, an area of 14th Street. It was a section. And uh, the workers there, the the transgender, the black transgender workers who had to work there, uh, they couldn't find a job anywhere else. I mean, there was just no other way to make a living. So they walked the stroll. They they named that section of the street, the stroll. And uh, this is more of a wider, in a sense, story of life as a as a black transgender worker um, that talks more about the implications talks more about the history of gentrification 
talks more about the implications of pushing people to the margins, uh, the realities of pushing people, uh, the realities of being in the margins, but also what it does to a community. So whereas Kokomo City, we get to know people individually. We get to know people individually in the stroll in the sense that uh, one of the directors worked the street for a, a while, for about a decade, Kristen Lovell, uh, in her documentary, or sorry, in her in her directorial debut, she has partnered with uh, Zachary Drucker from uh, Transparent, producer okay. on Transparent, yep. and the director of uh, The Lady and the Dale. They've come together, and they've made this like more wider sort of story of community, and um, when a community is threatened with erasure, in fact. First, they were threatened like physically uh, by the police, by Johns, by, you know, by all sorts of things. And then gentrification came along and threatened to erase their history and erase them. Like if you go to the that district now, it's luxury shops. So it's like, it's really interesting when there's this mix of archival footage in the stroll mixed with um, this um, animated footage that um, reconstructs some of their stories uh, in this weird animated noir style, which is really cool actually. Um, and then there's footage from old movies about sex workers, put that all together and it's just this vivid look. And then you get this story of this community which uh, which actually ends up being this really strong, vibrant, loving, proud community. And it's just, uh, anyway, I think it's a beautiful way. I'm sorry you didn't see the film, but it's a beautiful way to end our show. No, it, it definitely <laughs> is. And I, it's, it's one that I will definitely look out for. This, uh, the one good thing about Sundance is if you miss any of the films at the festival, chances are they're going to pop up later in the year because a lot of these films get a lot of buzz. And especially something like that, if you know if they won an award, you definitely know that they're they're gonna find a way to get out in the world. So, yeah, yeah, I'm sure the films that we've talked about um, and more, you, you'll be hearing more about them through through the year to come. And so this is just a little taste, right, of what mm -hmm. we've seen and what's to come in the year ahead. Yes, it was a it was a great festival and great way to know, start the year. Definitely a great way to start the year. Okay. That's it for us for this week. For Courtney Small, I'm Barbara Gosowski. This has been Frameline. Thanks for listening.